0: Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. This bonus episode is all about that unique and unenviable breed of human, the celebrity. So whether you're into musicians or artists or musicians who are secretly artists in their spare time, we've got something for everyone in this episode and we hope you enjoy it. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And these were some Damn Interesting Weeks.
1: First link.
0: All right. Well, this next one is a happy little article about Bob Ross. It's by Zachary Crockett at The Hustle, and it's called Why It's Nearly Impossible to Buy an Original Bob Ross Painting. Hmm. And it's true. You would think that they would be relatively easy to get a hold of because over his lifetime, Bob Ross created over 30,000 paintings. Whoa. By comparison, Picasso is considered one of the most prolific famous artists, and he only created around 13,000. Van Gogh only painted around 900, and Leonardo da Vinci created a measly 20. Wow. But first, the article takes a quick detour into Bob Ross's life, which is pretty fascinating in its own right. So he was born in 1942 in Florida. He dropped out of school in ninth grade to work with his father, who was a carpenter. Once he turned 18, he joined the Air Force and was stationed in Alaska, where he became a drill sergeant. Which, I don't know if you guys can imagine Bob Ross as a drill sergeant. I struggle. Yeah,
1: Yeah, he he has a strong military background, actually. Sometimes I struggle
0: with it, but then I think back to that aphorism that
2: it's always the quiet ones. Right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and apparently, even among the other drill sergeants, he had a particularly stern reputation, earning him the nickname "Bust 'Em up Bobby. Wow. But in his spare time for being a drill sergeant, he liked to paint, and he was particularly inspired by an artist named Bill Alexander who had his own TV show on PBS called The Magic of Oil Painting. Oh. So Bob Ross's gimmick at first was he would paint little landscapes on Alaskan gold mining pans and sell them as souvenirs to tourists. But before long, he was making more from the art than he was from the military. So in 1981, he moved back to Florida and became an official student of Bill Alexander, who crucially taught him his signature wet-on-wet technique, where you don't have to wait for one layer of paint to dry before adding more. And this is, of course, what allowed him to eventually paint a whole landscape within a 30-minute TV show. So it was a pretty Mm. important aspect of his career. So for about a year, he just worked as a painting teacher himself in Florida. But then Alexander's show, The Magic of Oil Painting, went off the air in 1982. And one of Bob Ross's students, Annette Kowalski, convinced him that he could fill the void. Weirdly enough, her husband, Walt Kowalski, had just retired from the CIA. And so they had a lot of money and nothing to do. So they agreed that this would be a nice little project to keep them all busy. So the three of them pooled their money and they formed a company called Bob Ross Inc. They pitched it to a PBS executive. He liked it. And the joy of painting went on the air in 1983. Wow. It ran for 11 years and probably would have gone on for much longer if he hadn't developed lymphoma and died at the age of 53. The show went right up to the end of his death, and at the very end, it was being syndicated on over 300 stations nationwide and reaching an audience of about 80 million viewers. (laughs) Wow. Wow. As a complete side note, this article actually linked to an older article from The Washington Post that was all about Bob Ross's apparent obsession with squirrels. He had a pet squirrel named Peapod that made several appearances on the show. Peapod? Yeah. (laughs) And Joan Kowalski, the daughter of Annette and Walt and current president of Bob Ross, Inc., said that he would just drop to his knees and play with any squirrel he saw in public. And he had this big enclosure outside his home in Orlando where he would nurse injured squirrels back to health before releasing them. Like he was, you know, it's one of those things you don't want to meet your heroes. But everything I've heard is like, no, this guy is the real deal. He's adorable (laughs) and wonderful, unless he's being a drill sergeant at you, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, so sweet. Interestingly, Bob Ross was never directly paid for any of the shows, and the art he created was officially owned by the parent company, Bob Ross Inc. Of course, he was a part owner of that company, and they used it as a platform to sell paints, instructional videos, and other merchandise. So by 1991, it was generating $15 million per year, or about $29 million today. Which, side note, when they made that dollar conversion, it made me feel so old. Because, of course, you know, yes, this was 30 (laughs) years ago. There's been some inflation, but it doesn't feel like it was that long ago, you know? And so they're like, oh, no, in old 90s dollars. And I'm like, oh, my God, just (laughs) kill me now. That's just rude. Yeah. Super rude. It's because his presence is timeless. That's why. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) But back to the idea of if you wanted to buy one of these paintings, In total, he made 381 episodes of his show, which actually accounts for 1,143 paintings, because for each episode, he would paint the same image three times, once before taping, once during, and then once after, which they don't explain. Like, I get the once before, is like, okay, let me get my pattern down, okay, now I'm going to tape it. But then mm-hmm. why after? I don't understand. Huh. But the rest of the 30,000 came from his time before the show in Alaska, plus daily seminars, public events and charity auctions after he became famous, which he was apparently doing just on a daily basis. He was constantly out there. And wow. a lot of these paintings were just given away at the event because, as Joan Kowalski noted, quote, he was about as uninterested in the actual paintings as you could possibly be. For him, it was the journey. He wanted to teach people the paintings were just a means to do that. So because of all this, a lot of his works are just sitting in regular people's homes, and they're not really interested in selling, even though some can go for up to $95,000 when they do come up for auction. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. One rare art collector who declined to be named for the article said she has both a Bob Ross original and a Picasso, and the Bob Ross gets far more comments from friends. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he was kind of like the people's painter, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everybody likes him. But if you do want to just see one instead of own it, that's actually pretty easy. There's the Bob Ross Gallery in New Smyrna, Florida, the Bob Ross Experience in Muncie, Indiana, and four of his paintings are actually owned by the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., I don't know how wow. often they put them on display, but they're there. So So I wonder if you actually go to the Bob Ross experience, do you like travel through his life and then get yelled at by a drill sergeant before getting to the paintings? <laughs> that would be awesome if they had like a little like a like a museum display where you push a button and it plays mm-hmm. the audio and it yells at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Next link.
1: Next link. link. This article comes to us from the dailybeast.com and it's titled Why Lady Gaga's Dog Napping Has Stumped Pet detectives. Oh, so, have you all heard about this? Yes, I
0: have. It okay, was really yeah. sort of frightening. I thought. I mean, yeah. I understand yeah. people feel yeah. dogs, but like shooting the guy seemed excessive to me. Well, I mean,
2: when you consider the reward amount, I think it was something like five hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. I mean, you can hire a hitman from less, according sure. to uh, media I've seen. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. No, not, not although for many that did knowledge.
1: happen <laughs> after <laughs> the reward was given after the shooting happened. So mm-hmm. uh, just to just to be to to catch anybody who hasn't caught up on this yet uh lady gaga's two french bulldogs were stolen off of los angeles street on wednesday night by unidentified assailants who shot the pop star's dog walker the dog walker i believe his name is ryan fisher was shot in the chest but he did survive and okay. he's in critical condition but they do think he'll make a full recovery the dogs were actually returned unharmed late friday but the suspects remain at large so, we center on Jamie Katz, who is a pet detective and has been for the last seven years, but even she was kind of blown away by the Lady Gaga dog napping. Mm. Of the 700 lost pet cases Katz has taken on since she started her agency in Florida in late 2015, only about 4% of those have actually been thefts. More often than not, Katz is dealing with frantic owners who think their pets have been stolen when actually they just ran off or a concerned passerby took them in, mm. but Given the added violence of the Lady Gaga shooting, she says it's now more of a missing person case that the police are best equipped to deal with. Mm. Although the crime was vicious, the motive likely wasn't complicated. Brandi Hunter is vice president of PR for the American Kennel Club, and she says people steal dogs for two main reasons, both coming from greed. They want the dog or they want to sell the dog. Mm. Whereas Jamie Katz has sometimes seen a third reason, which is a retaliation type situation where an animal is stolen because of something that person did. So French Bulldogs, which weigh less than 28 pounds, can cost would-be owners thousands. They're the fourth most popular breed of 197 dog breeds listed on the American Kennel Club's website. And Hunter says popular breeds that are smaller in stature are the most common targets. Frenchies, Yorkies, Shih Tzus. But unlike human hostages, stolen dogs are rarely ransomed back to their original owners. Uh, Hunter says, ransom is not a common situation when it comes to dog theft. The thief is opting to sell.
2: Mm-hmm. I know French bulldogs are also some of the more expensive pets to have because of how they're bred. Their heads are too big to be delivered naturally, and so they all have to be born through C section. Oh, I didn't know wow. that. That's what makes them yep. expensive.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: So the crime of dognapping has a long history beyond Lady Gaga, similar to the old crimes of robbing graves to supply illicit cadavers to scientists. <laughs> wow. It's so a weird comparison, comparison, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> so nappers' primary targets for fencing stolen dogs were once medical researchers. In 1966, however, the Animal Welfare Act severely limited the procurement and experimentation on canines. A longtime dog thief testified before Congress about his profession as part of the proceedings, and the shift led thieves to sell more often to breeders. Notable dog nappings vary by region. Uh, in Ireland, where dog racing is popular, a greyhound worth a million euros was stolen from his kennel in 2016. Dang. Yeah. Well, the- how are you
2: going to race a greyhound that is that famous without people knowing that it was stolen?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's easier to steal dogs than horses, too, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I've certainly heard of horse thieves, but, like, dog thieves, you know, ostensibly a little quicker to get away with. I don't know. Right, um, and if you can
0: steal Munch's The Scream, you can steal a Greyhound. Like, you, there's a right? yeah. market for everything, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the abduction of Lady Gaga's dogs is not, according to Hunter, part of a larger pattern in the United States. Although, in the UK, experts say the past year has been the worst ever for pet thefts. Not sure why. Aww. The coronavirus pandemic has sent demand for pets skyrocketing, so much so that desperate New Yorkers adopted or fostered nearly every available dog and cat in the city in March 2020. Uh, I know in Austin, we mm-hmm. emptied out a number of pet shelters as well. Mm-hmm. And despite what might seem like obvious economics, high demand boosts prices, which in turn incentivize thieves. The American Kennel Club has not seen a marked increase in dog nappings as lockdown is rolled on, and stay-at-home orders are probably the reason for that. Mm-hmm. Sure, if you're home uh, with your
0: dog every day, nobody can steal it from you.
1: Right, mm-hmm. yeah. Or at least it would be much, much harder. Right.
0: Unless they have mm-hmm. a gun, in which case they right. can leave. Yeah.
1: Don't be a celebrity, and keep your dogs <laughs> at home.
0: And... <laughs> right. and have a big dog. Like, these are all yes. little dogs that can't fight back. i was just thinking about, it. I have two little dogs and a big one. Someone could absolutely steal the little ones. But the big one would not put up with that nonsense. He would absolutely (laughs) fight back. I would love to see someone
2: try to steal our pit bull. Good luck, guys.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next
2: link. link. The Smithsonian Magazine has an article about a David Bowie painting that was purchased at a landfill for $4. That is expected to fetch thousands at auction. And since the article is a little old, I looked up the price that it sold for. Sold for $108,000. Whoa. That's
1: quite a few thousands.
2: (laughs) So was
0: it a picture of him or a picture painted by him?
2: By Bowie. Uh, There's a label on the back and it quite clearly identifies the work. But they wanted to confirm the portrait's provenance. So Cowley Abbott Auction House contacted Andy Peters, who is an authenticator of Bowie's handwriting and artwork. Mm. What a job title. Yeah. When Peters saw the canvas, he knew what it was straight away. So they were able to identify the fact that the work was quite similar to many of the portraits from the series Deadheads, which was a series of artwork that David Bowie did Mm. in apparently 1997 the picture itself is rather modest it's 9.75 by 8 <laughs> inches i mean you know in size anyway i mean it was right it sounds bowie like painting, a nice so. way of
0: saying bowie wasn't a good painter it's just because fan- well, he did
2: it <laughs> okay full disclosure i am not the most well-versed or sophisticated visual art connoisseur and so you know there's a picture of it at the article you can take mm-hmm. a look at it it kind of is a watercolory looking blank face with kind of a shag haircut in shades of white, red, and blue. It's, it's fine. But again, I am not an art <laughs> critic. But you know, obviously, uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. The number of it is 46. And the painting is one of 47 in the D-Head series. And the people who sat for the photos ranged from band members,
0: friends and acquaintances, and there were also some self portraits. It's fascinating to me that someone had this and knew that David Bowie painted it. And then somehow that information got lost and it ended up in the hands of someone who was like, oh, this is a garbage painting. It's going right. yeah. it's like how how do you lose that data? I guess when people die, if somebody had it and it was part of an estate and then the child just had no idea.
2: I mean, you're also assuming that whoever the recipient was, you know, had very stable relationships. It could have been like, sure. you know, something in a very terrible breakup. Well, I'm taking this and now it reminds me of my ex. so I'm throwing it away. That's, That's where true. my brain went.
0: Still, you just threw away $100,000. That- yeah. <laughs> Someone's
2: feeling like a dumb dumb for sure right now. <laughs> <laughs> Next link.
1: Next, Next link. link. So uh, we all know about Elon Musk, right? Space guy, SpaceX, yeah. Tesla. <gasps> yeah, that guy. Yeah, <laughs> That
2: guy. <laughs> so
1: he gets a lot of people trying to reach out to him and message him and stuff like that. But apparently he recently changed his phone number and now it belongs to Lindsay Tucker, who is a 25-year-old <laughs> skincare consultant. Oh, no. so <laughs> she has been getting uh, Elon Musk's calls and text messages for years, essentially, oh my uh, God. looks like 2 or 3 years. <laughs> wow. And yeah, so she works at a Sephora beauty store in San Jose, California and had never even heard of Tesla and SpaceX. Until a couple years ago, which is really when Elon Musk started blowing up. And so on any given day, she receives at least three calls or texts intended for Musk, who she has never Uh. actually met. It's especially bad whenever the, you know, maverick billionaire, as he's called in this article, which is (laughs) actually from uh, NPR.org, should have mentioned that. Whenever he provokes a scandal, mm-hmm. he her phone will end up blowing up with a torrent of messages related to it.
0: So I guess this number must be on on the internet somewhere as a way to get in touch with Elon Musk. Because otherwise, I mean, why would it persist for so long? Right. Or yeah. even saved in people's contacts
2: as in their phones that they pass along to other people. Yeah. If it is a bit of a gated network.
1: Yeah. And there's actually a document that they embedded of a screenshot where somebody just texts Elon with a question mark and... <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay messages back nope and this person says that they met with him last week and was given uh this number so apparently during this time around 2017 Elon must have just switched over and so that number was probably circulating around quite a bit
0: or he's just mm-hmm. being a jerk and giving out a fake number because he doesn't want yeah. right, to deal cause, with you know
2: women do that in bars yeah. to get away from creepy creeps but poor Lindsay
0: well I mean she could change her number if she wanted like I feel like this is not entirely that awful for her or she would do something about it yeah but but then what would that number do in the wrong
2: hands of someone who knew who he was and wanted to wreak <laughs> havoc? She might be doing us a public service. That's
0: right. right. That's right. She's investigating <laughs>
1: him. It's much better to have somebody who just doesn't really care and thinks it's fun as opposed to mm-hmm. somebody who is intentionally malicious about it. Uh, right. So she's intercepted some pretty interesting calls as well. One woman volunteered to go to space with SpaceX. Another person sent in a blueprint for a bionic limb. And <laughs> Tucker actually reports saying, number one, really cool, but I have no idea how it's built a South African businessman asked about buying a thousand trucks and the IRS actually called about a complicated tax issue. Tucker <laughs> thought that that one was for her. And so she was oh, very no. relieved. She does and... not owe
0: several million dollars in some sort of error.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, she's gotten a call from the former Walt Disney executive, John Lasseter, who texted about the Tesla he just bought, saying that it was a magnificent car and that the self-driving <laughs> is a trip. And Tucker actually ended up going to the same college as his son. So they were able to connect over that. Also, Jeff Gold, who's an Atlanta area inventor, sent a text message about some coronavirus research. Gold said that Elon had given him the number a long time ago. And so he just went back in his phone records Mm -hmm. and uh, tracked down the correct number and reset the text, essentially.
0: (laughs) Well, it sounds like it makes sense that he had to change his own number because if she's getting this much junk, even now, three years after the fact, imagine how much stuff he must get on a daily basis once his number starts getting out there. I know, my heart really breaks for him. (laughs) Aw.
1: Yeah, so public records actually do show that Tucker's number, which was once Elon's number, was associated with a condo that he bought and sold years ago in Palo Alto. And after Musk got rid of the number, AT&T just randomly reassigned it to Tucker. Mm-hmm. But it was <laughs> replicated online on dozens of listing sites as Musk's current digits.
0: There it is. And it's never going away now because it like you said, it's replicated everywhere.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so NPR actually reached out to Musk to see if he knew about it and he was really surprised. He said, Wow, that number is so old, I'm surprised it's still out there somewhere.
0: And <laughs> I was like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna contact her or do anything about it. I just, okay, wow, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what an interesting problem somebody
2: else is having, huh? <laughs>
1: (laughs) Yeah, and Tucker's often found that she is having to actually convince people that she is not Musk. And they'll say, oh, how do I know you're not Elon? Even though apparently they're obviously talking to a woman on the phone that is not Elon Musk. And (laughs) while Tucker finds it really interesting and kind of a rare window into the life of Elon Musk, It can feel like a full-time job because whenever she sees his name pop up in the news, she thinks, oh, I actually have to learn about what he said because chances are somebody's (laughs) going to message me and call about it. And she (laughs) She says that even though she finds it funny most of the time, it does get irritating when it seems like it's call after call after call.
0: Yeah. And I imagine there's probably a lot of angry calls in there, too. Like you said, he's prone to scandal. And I imagine Mm -hmm. it just like any sort of high profile person, he's going to be getting death threats and, you know, people just being generally angry (laughs) at him because it's not possible to be a figure of that status and not have people be angry at you. So it's like, I mean, she's got all of the awful part of it and none of the benefit of being an incredibly rich person.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And she says that she's going to keep the number because she's actually an aspiring actress who does have a network of contacts who now know her by these digits. Oh. Uh, (laughs) But she does acknowledge that her ability to respond to all of the must calls and text changes varying depending on the day. She even has a message for anybody who's reading this NPR article, which says, I'm sorry, sometimes I don't respond if I'm having a rough day. So if you didn't get a response, it's probably me, not him. Don't feel too let down.
0: <laughs> she so goes gracious. Apologizing for him.
2: for. I mean, that's just... <laughs> the whole subtext of this article is really kind of a commentary on women's emotional labor and how that is basically... Both hidden and expected and
0: maybe that's been on my mind a lot but right. uh well she, yeah she feels like she's gotta not so much for his sake but i think for the caller's sake you know she doesn't want to just leave them hanging she feels like she's gotta reach out and connect and say oh i'm sorry you didn't reach that person
1: i hope that Tucker, at least, is going to turn this into some kind of hustle. Like, maybe at one point, she'll just randomly get a call from a casting director who's trying to cast her in an Elon Musk movie, and she just finds a way to plug herself there and uh, take advantage of all that work she's doing.
2: That's right. I, she I might ho- be getting I hope it works it. out for her. That's
0: right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she deserves it.
1: Next link. Next, Next link. link. So, speaking of photos of celebrities, this article comes to us from DW.com, and it's titled, The Story Behind Albert Einstein's Most Iconic Photo. Hmm. You've probably seen this one. Tongue uh, out. Yeah. I know what you're yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, the waggy tongue one. So, uh, <laughs> it was March 14th, 1951, the day that Albert Einstein turned 72. Hmm. And the famous physicist, who was born in Ulm, Germany, had already been living in the U.S. for many years. At the time he was working at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, a birthday celebration was being held in his honor at the Research Center. So the paparazzi was lurking around the venue outside when he left, hoping to hear one of the world-famous professors, witty quips about the global political situation and to take the perfect birthday photo. But not a fan of media hype and growing weary of being a spokesperson, Einstein was annoyed by their presence, and yet there he was, stuck in the back of a limo, sandwiched between the Institute's former director, Frank Deloitte, and his wife, Marie, unable to escape the flashing bulbs. And enough is enough, he is said to have repeatedly shouted at the pushy reporters, and in a gesture of annoyance, the unconventional free spirit stuck his tongue out at his pursuers, a moment that was captured by photographer Arthur Sass. The picture quickly circulated <laughs> around the world, becoming an iconic image. Yeah. But it wasn't actually the photographer who helped the photo achieve worldwide fame, but Einstein himself. Hmm. <gasps> he ordered numerous prints and cropped it so that the Adaloit couple could no longer be seen. <laughs> He sent dozens of the photos to colleagues, friends, and acquaintances, and he wrote to his friend, Joanna Fantova, the outstretched tongue reflects my political views. (laughs) And (laughs) yeah, in 2009, an original signed copy was sold for $74,324 at auction, making it the most expensive photo of the genius ever. So... You know, Einstein was really one of the first NFT artists. Yeah. I mean, so, three
0: headshots. How are you going to turn that down? If someone takes a really nice picture of me, you bet I'm going to use it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then I'm going to resell it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that that was a
2: paparazzi photo. Not only that, taken by a photographer whose last name was Sass. Right. I mean, right. Yeah. Come on.
1: <laughs> I mean, it is S-A-S-S-E. So it might be like Sassy, which would nope. be even better. Or No, nope, s- That doesn't Sass. work for my
2: narrative. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-mm. it's sass or or yeah. he was a sassy photographer yeah okay, there you that's go. allowable mm-hmm.
1: yeah mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> so einstein who was jewish had fled nazi germany and knew what it felt like to be the subject of a government-led witch hunt thus he did not condone the cold war and the search for alleged communists instigated by senator joseph mccarthy in which many politicians intellectuals and artists were accused of being un-american And Einstein had a lot to say about such human stupidity. The ruling of the dumb people can't be overcome (laughs) because there are so many of them and their voice counts as much as ours, reads an Einstein quote translated from German two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity, but I'm not quite sure about the universe yet. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: It makes you wonder, like, why are more physicists not photographed with their tongues out? Mm-hmm. Like, this seems to be a good PR move, if We anything. probably just need, like, a section of the paparazzi
2: that doesn't focus only on celebrities and politicians. Right. The, the right
0: people should be celebrities. Let's get some more fame into the
1: There science.
0: you go. Yeah. yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's pretty uncommon, though, to have a influential and charismatic scientists. I guess I can only really That's think true. of four, mm-hmm. which would be Bill Nye, Sagan, Einstein, and Feynman would yeah. probably be the, the top four like Neil really Degrass chatty Tyson? ones.
0: Yeah, Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson's made
1: a pretty big career out of it. Yeah, but you know, like he's intentionally annoying, so right. I, don't <laughs> <laughs> I don't know.
0: I don't know. I kind of put Bill Nye in that category myself. I, I, oh, I yeah. I mean,
1: Bill Nye's changed a little bit. You know, he he understands what's required to succeed in the world we live in. So like <laughs> I don't hate. I'm just saying right. it's intentional. But you
0: know what did that to him, right? It was the paparazzi. Like the fame is what turned oh, him. Oh, wow. So okay. we can't. We have to protect our scientists from the paparazzi is apparently. Yeah. It's, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah.
1: You know, it's the paparazzi scientist industrial complex. So All right. <laughs> okay, next link. Nice. Next link.
0: All right. Well, this one comes from the BBC. It's called Six Things We Didn't Know About the Beatles. And to be clear, this is The Beatles, the band, not The Bug. Got it. Okay. And it's a little bit of a Russian doll here because what we have is an article talking about a Radio 4 broadcast in the UK, which was itself discussing a book that came out last year called 1234 by Craig Brown. And, (laughs) you know, now all these people are going to listen to a podcast discussing that article. And if some of the folks hearing this right now could write an email to a friend then that friend could text another friend about the email and we could just like keep adding layers until we all fall <laughs> into the sun but anyway The book itself is a very personal, behind-the-scenes look at the Beatles, especially in their younger days as they were just starting to become really famous, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the fun facts they share is that the childhood homes of both John Lennon and Paul McCartney are owned and maintained by the National Trust in England. Like, they're publicly owned. They're museums, basically. And, in fact, the person who bought McCartney's home and donated it to the Trust was Yoko Ono in the early 2000s. Hey. Yeah, which means I think either... Yoko thinks that Ringo and George's homes aren't as special, or whoever's currently living in them doesn't want to sell. Like they don't talk about those two, so I don't know where they are. But they do note that the houses have both gone through a fair number of renovations and then unrenovations to restore the style that they would have had when the Beatles were kids. But one of the completely original parts of Paul's house is the drain pipe along the back that Paul would use to sneak in and out of the house as a teenager. Hmm. He later used these same skills after he became famous and had to sneak around to avoid fans and paparazzi. So one of the more involved routes to get out of his girlfriend's house that they talk about was to climb out an attic window, walk across the roof to the window of the next door neighbor, climb in that window, which apparently the guy didn't mind, Take an elevator down to the basement where another young couple who lived there would escort him through their kitchen and garage to the outside. So, like, the whole neighborhood was in on it. And, (laughs) you know, how weird to be someone who just lives in a little flat in England and then occasionally one of the Beatles walks through, you know? (laughs) There's another story about how after their very first concert in the U.S., they were invited to a reception at the British embassy. But one of the guests, and they don't say whether they were British or American, but I'd have to assume American mocked them for basically being something only teenage girls were interested in. And John Lennon got so mad, he stormed out of the party. Oh. And later that same evening, Ringo was mingling and chatting when someone snuck up with a pair of scissors and cut a chunk off his hair and ran off. Oh, Yeah. Oh, wow. And the perpetrator was a mystery for about 40 years. But then in the early 2000s, a woman named Beverly Markowitz owned up to it. And oh. she claims that she stole his hair not because she was a big fan who wanted a piece of it, but because her boyfriend had dragged her to the embassy party and she was bored and wanted to leave, But he wouldn't agree to go, so she decided to do something that would be, like, sure to get them kicked out. And it did. (laughs) So she still has the little lock of hair in a scrapbook. And my guess is she's waiting for Ringo to die so it'll drive the price up. (laughs) Because while none of Ringo's hair has ever sold at auction, a lock of John Lennon's hair sold for no less than 35,000 pounds a few years back. Wow. Yeah. Apparently, at the height of their fame, their hair was such a hot commodity that their manager would personally gather up the clippings whenever one of them got a haircut and incinerate them. (gasps) Oh my gosh. John Lennon also once gave one of his teeth to his housekeeper because her daughter was a fan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And that tooth was also sold at auction a while back for 19,000 pounds. Not as much as the hair, which is weird to me. Yeah. It feels like a tooth should be more. It seems more intimate, but at least you can stroke the
2: hair and kind of like imagine what it might feel like on the head versus stroking a right. tooth. The tooth, the tooth that is a little doesn't... grosser. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, and the tooth story actually gets even weirder because the guy who bought the tooth is a dentist And he has stated publicly that he believes John Lennon fathered several illegitimate children, and he's willing to join forces with those hypothetical people and have the tooth DNA tested to prove their case in exchange for a percentage of the inheritance that they would presumably sue for once they had established paternity. So he's just sort of putting this offer out there like, hey, if you think John Lennon was secretly your dad, come to me. and we'll split the money.
1: (laughs) Like, what, do do you think this guy, like, (laughs) <laughs> Did he have this plan from the beginning or was he just being a dentist? I don't know what dentists like to collect. If they collect anything, it's probably teeth. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like he, he thought, oh, well, that's a really cool collector's item. And he was like, what the hell am I going to do with this tooth? That's right. Well, and then... <laughs> you're going to
2: wait for genetic cloning to get a little bit better so that you can auction such an item. Right. Clone John Lennon.
1: It scares me how real that could be. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Uh... <laughs> or it could have just been like a con- complex way to make it a business write-off. You know, if he's interested in teeth, that doesn't really count. But if he's like, no, I'm turning this into an investment. (laughs) Another fun fact is that in 1966, the band was taking a three-month vacation from touring, and Paul McCartney decided to try taking a road trip in disguise around Europe to see if he could live life as a normal person. His disguise consisted of a fake mustache, glasses, and slicking back his hair with Vaseline. Which doesn't sound oh at all convincing, but apparently it worked 100% of the time. He was able to go around and have a great <laughs> vacation, but he decided he didn't like being normal after all when he was refused entry into a swanky nightclub in France. <laughs> so he left and came back again without the disguise and he got in. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, a Euro
2: trash disguise only goes so far in Europe, right? Yes, If exactly. you have a mustache, yeah.
0: sunglasses, and you're greasing your hair back. You just look like everybody else. You're not that cool. That's right. That's right. <laughs> But there's a bunch of other stories in here. And I'll be honest, I'm not actually a huge fan of the Beatles. Like, they're fine. But this article did make me think about reading the book because the stories are all just so charming. You know, they Mm -hmm. really were kids. And it's not something you think about necessarily. Like, oh, they're geniuses and ahead of their time. It's like, well, yeah, but they were also just teenagers doing Mm -hmm. teenager stuff. Giving teeth to people, apparently. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this bonus episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye bye.